Welcome to the Anime Podcast. This week finds us moored in Loch Ness in the Highlands of Scotland. It appears that ghost Jeffrey Epstein has come here to learn the Loch Ness Monster's secret of immortality. We'll get back to our quest later in the episode, however. First, we'll be discussing the attack on workers' rights, the role of unions in the post-COVID, post-Brexit UK. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it, subscribe to us on Spotify or one of our other platforms. Myself, Alex, uh, Will, Dan, and uh, Dr. Bumjuice himself, James. Um, and uh, we're going to be beginning, I suppose, with a basic question, um, which I think is we can all put uh, compare things in this. What is our experiences uh, of working in the UK, uh, specifically the UK, before the pandemic and maybe over sometime over the last 10 years, it'd have to be 10 years for me. And in case of two people who are currently working there now, uh, what are their current experiences, both positive and negative? Uh, so yeah, does anyone wanna start with this? Because we could, what we're gonna try and do is get a sense of what it's like there uh, as it is, and we'll go from there. So we have, um, oh no, a new nickname, uh, FSLN Bumlord, which I can only imagine is James. <laughs> um, so go for a tanky. Yeah. So, um, in case listeners are not aware, I'm originally from Edinburgh, uh, and I moved to to Ireland about uh, four years ago. So most of my working life has been spent in um, Scotland, uh, working in various places, and I can pretty much say that working in um, the UK is a fucking shit show of the highest order. Uh, sorry, <clears throat> basically, I'm crying now. Um, every boss, bar one, um, every manager, every supervisor that I ever met was an asshole. And this was more to do with the culture that exists there than anything else. Uh, I think, um, saying like shops, uh, the managerial world that lives there, they all go to the same sort of like skills that are all taught by the same um, like companies effectively uh, that, you know, have the same ways about going around how you should um, motivate your staff. And it's effectively facilitating what the state does. Uh, the UK state only governs exclusively through violence. So the way that the UK work culture is through aggression or microaggressions. Okay. Um, so that's a pretty succinct view, uh, kind of experience of Edinburgh, which since I worked there briefly as well, there was mostly unemployed in Edinburgh. I'll corroborate call, call that. Very mean people in intro. Uh, oh, sorry, not intro, job center, isn't it? Anyway, uh, next uh, on the shopping block is Will. Yeah, so like, um, like I work in schools in the UK. Um, I mean, I've worked in shops as well, but like specifically, I'm a school teacher in England now. And my experience has been that head teachers um, normally get where they are because they're pretty good at coercing members of staff into doing things they're not particularly comfortable with. Um, most recently, I suppose, like my experience of my head teacher during lockdown has been I was living in Ireland, I was living in Dublin. You guys shut your schools down. Um, on the list of people who were allowed to travel in Ireland at the time, um, teachers were not included on this because there was no need for teachers to go in. Um, what then happened was schools in the UK were starting to reopen for, I say the UK, I just actually mean England, um, were starting to reopen for year 10s and I was told I had to come back in. I asked for advice about this and 
the advice from the Irish was if you are um, traveling to the UK and you're on an approved list of people who can travel, then that's fine. Um, but if you're not on that list, then you can't travel. So I took that to mean I wasn't allowed to travel because teachers were not on that list. I emailed my head teacher this um, and he said, no, 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 you've got a letter from the UK saying that you're allowed to travel within the UK. I then had to explain to him that Ireland was not part of the UK and that his letter had no authority over here. He then said, well, I still expect you in. Um, I looked up what would happen if I was caught traveling. And by the, so like my journey to the UK would have been a tram from where I was living to the city centre, a bus from the city centre to the airport, an hour and a half on a flight with recycled air, um, and then a two-hour train journey from London back to Southampton. Um, at none of these points can I really effectively social distance. And for the hour and a half I'm in the air, um, I am breathing the same air as other people. It's not like there's fresh air on a flight, right? So I told my head teacher this, um, and I said, look, I've got serious concerns for the safety of myself and my fiance. Um, and he was like, well, I don't really give a shit. Um, and this is like, by the way, a head teacher who prides himself on taking particular concern for staff well-being. And I was told as well, or when I looked it up, it seemed to be the case that I'd get a thousand euro fine if I was caught traveling unnecessarily too. Again, this is at the time lockdown's been like, um, like lifted slightly since then. Uh, after I managed to organize movers to get me from the UK, sorry, from Dublin to the UK, um, and after like I managed to like actually book flights and book transport and all that kind of shit, I emailed them to say, I've managed to like secure passage to the UK. Um, this is obviously dependent upon me not getting stopped um, at any point, because if I get stopped, I'm going to get turned around. And his email to me in its entirety was, okay, thanks. So like, he was asking me to take this enormous risk, a legal risk, a health risk, a financial risk. And what I got back was, okay, thanks. Sorry, this is turning into a therapy session for me. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Good. No, it's good. It's good. I like it. Um, one brief question before we go to... I want to hear what Dan's experience are, experiences are because they're probably even worse than Will's. Uh, Will, do you, from your knowledge, is Eaton and Harrow open at the moment? No, nah, I think the private schools are all staying closed because, like, you wouldn't want Tarquin or you know someone like this getting unwell. Surprise, surprise. Uh, okay, before we go to back to James, I want to hear Dan's experiences, which are well. I'll hear now. Yeah, Dan, go for it. Unload. <laughs> well, in terms of. The amount of jobs I've worked, I haven't actually had that many because I've, I've been at my current place for 17 years. Um, and in some respects, it's very much a time warp. It's If you wanted to see what manufacturing was like in the 1960s and 70s in the UK, come to my place. It's almost like a, a working museum for manufacturing history. Um, I've worked in offices and... I can say honestly say that the, the management class in the UK are fucking wankers, and there's no there's no two ways about it. I mean, the reason that the office was so popular was because it, it really tapped into something that a lot of people have to deal with on a daily basis. Is that they're just completely disconnected from any kind of reality. But in terms of my personal working working circumstances at the moment, it's it's just shit. I mean. We're, we're back. We were back as of the 1st of June. Um, we work in a sector where it's it's basically manufacturing new PVC windows. So we couldn't fit windows during the height of lockdown. We couldn't send people out to fit windows. Um, even though our boss declared us an essential industry, he, he was forced to shut down because nobody wanted fitters coming around the house to fit windows. Um, we actually opened up two weeks later than a lot of other window companies, which that was, I think, partly because they couldn't source the PPE. They were really slow off the bat at sorting that out. Um, we were raising concerns from the end of February with regards to it's an open factory. People could just come in and deliver stuff. People we don't know just use the toilets, delivery drivers and all that sort of stuff. So I was taking it upon myself to go around and clean all contact surfaces in the morning. We were having fights amongst the factory floor staff because people wanted doors closed where I was propping them open just because it's less contact surfaces. Um, but now we've got the PPE, we've got all 
protective gear and sort of hand gel and all this. But there's certain things in place now where you have to wear a face mask all day. It's it's a, a hot hot factory anyway, but when it's been warm as it has, like a 30, 30 plus degree heat, you can't take your face mask off. You can't even have air circulation because of the dangers of spreading around coronavirus. Um, and it's an absolute nightmare. And then to top it off, they, they tried to participate in a bit of wage theft, which we've caught them out on before. Um, the start of the year, they, they attempted the same thing. Um, and we basically would refuse to work until they sorted it out. And that got sorted out pretty quick. And essentially the same thing happened where we have we have a, a few different bonuses where we'll have a production bonus for the amount of work that goes out. We also have a loyalty bonus, which is for every year after two years that you've been there, you'll pay, you'll get paid an extra pound a week. So it's not even like it's a huge amount. Well, being there 17 years, I'm, I'm entitled to 15 pound on top of standard wage. Um, but what they decided to do was the minimum wage took me above my basic rate. So rather than paying that basic rate and then adding the loyalty bonus, they tried to incorporate the loyalty bonus into the increase in minimum wage, which essentially is £20 a week that I'd be losing, which when you don't earn a huge amount is a fucking lot of money. Um, and so people were just absolutely pissed off. So in other words, it's mostly a negative experience. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, not, it's not great. Let's put it this way. <laughs> okay, James. Um, one of the main things you have to realize about um, the UK working practices, and this probably exists in many places as well, it's that managers either purposely don't understand or generally don't understand what labor is. And so you're doing them the favor by turning up and working there because they profit from your labor, um, where the amount of people that I had to work under that would say things along the lines of, I'm not paying you to be here. I own your time is effectively the way that they see it. Well, so while you're in this office or you're in this workplace, everything you do, I am paying for. It's under my uh, jurisdiction. And I think just that, um, the idea that you are actually own someone else's time is such an insidious and disgusting position to hold. Actually, they, you have nailed one of the, the big things about my place. Um, so it, it's it's an industrial estate that's sort of out of out of a small, smallish town. Um, but there's a lot of buildings clustered up and there's only one road. So essentially, we asked our boss at the time, our factory floor manager, if we could come in two minutes early, leave two minutes early, um, so we avoid the, the traffic. It basically makes everything flow a bit better. It's no harm to anyone. Um, the, the head of the company came down and spoke to the manager. He, he wanted to know why we were leaving early, and he made the point, well, they're coming in two minutes early. And he was saying, I don't care. I dictate when they come in, I dictate when they leave. And yeah, in, in agreement with James, that is the attitude. And that I find is at the core of most of the conflict at, in workplaces where I've worked. Now, um, just to move the conversation on a bit, um, it should be said, and we'll, I'll ask this in a second, but the current union membership that I was able to find online, all good bookstores, oh well, online, um, was uh, 6.5, and that's after, after an increase that was last year's figures but that's after an increase year on year since 2016 when i was at a very low but to give put that into perspective in 1979 it was 13.2 million which is i think the highest uh, it was in history at least that's what i've been able to see and again the population was lower then so now it's at about 23.4 percent uh, which is the highest, or 23.5% there. Uh, but it has been much, much higher in the past. Do you, or is any of the people here a member of a union? If not, uh, why aren't you? And not in an accusative way, but a legitimate question. Uh, if so, has it actually helped you? It doesn't sound like uh, any of you are particularly doing well or have done well in the workforce in the UK. Um, so I see a number of hands went up. I'll go with Will first because he hasn't spoken in a while. 
Oh, that's okay. Um, so like I'm a member of two unions and actually I'm pretty active in both. So I am a member of a teaching union. Um, this is for a few reasons. Um, firstly, uh, they offer like really great insurance against you being accused of something. So obviously working with vulnerable young people, um, sometimes they react badly um, and like will falsely accuse members of staff. Um, because like some, like, you know, like it happens for a variety of reasons, but like normally it's because um, they're traumatized in, in, in a variety of ways and they need to like have some sort of outlet of that anger. And like a fairly stable adult is normally a good person to direct that anger to because it's like a safe outlet. Um, but this like obviously causes significant distress for members of staff. So trade union membership and teaching is probably really high because it gives you this like insurance against being um, accused by a pupil or actually by a colleague as well. Um, if you ask most teachers why they're a member of a union, it's normally nothing to do with industrial action. It's normally nothing to do with wages. It's normally to do with like protection against um, a false accusation of some sort. Um, I am the union rep for my school. Um, and I at one point was also the regional secretary um, for the trade union for the south of England as well. Um, like the stories we get through to the regional office are absolutely horrific. Like I can't even begin to express like how terrible some head, like my head teachers, I mean, overall fine. Um, but like some head teachers are like absolute, absolute cunts. Like you would not believe how bad they are. And um, for my sins, I'm also a um, organizer and a caseworker for the IWW. Um, I'm a really big fan of them. Um, Interestingly, what you were saying about union membership, I can't really track it with the teachers union because, like I said, most teachers are a member of a union. But for the IWW, over the past three months, we have almost tripled our membership. Um, how that plays out when people actually start going back to work um, like fully, uh, that, that will be interesting to see. Um, but yeah, like I've got, obviously at the moment, things are still slowly getting back. Um, so like I don't really have... I don't know how it's going to like play out. So before I go on, just yes or no, has union membership helped you in your workplace? Uh, I mean, for the teachers. Yes or no? Yes. yes or no? Yes. Good. Uh, James. Yes or no? Just say it. Just say yes or no. <laughs> Here you, shut it, you wank. <laughs> um, yeah, this kind of would lead us on to the topic for another podcast. But uh, I... I've, as much as I agree with being in a trade union, I just simply, a lot of the time, have been in jobs where trade unions don't exist. Or the the ability to get into a trade union is like set at a certain aspect. So say like I do a lot of freelance writing, but there has to be a certain amount of freelance writing. You get paid per annum that you become like, you know, uh, join the, the journalist unions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my main experience from trade unionism comes from actually helping organize a wildcat strike on a farm that I worked on in um, undeclosed location. Um, yeah, well, not in Edinburgh anyway, because there's no farms <laughs> apart from Gorgie Farm. And I did not leave a revolt in Gorgie Farm. But uh, the, the way that, um, say, the you know a lot of the farms in the UK uh, use outside labour of you know Scotland or England. It's a lot of say when I was working there it was mostly a Polish workforce, uh, but you know you'd get people from uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia etc cetera, etc, cetera. Uh, and they basically would just not pay people the the minimum wage. And it was just by happenstance. So I was, I was just chatting away to someone one day and they they told me kind of how their 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 pay came out. And I was like, there's something not right about that. That sounds weird. Um, and it was a case of like, look, when you work on a farm picking strawberries, you should get paid the minimum wage. And then it was like you get topped up per punnet that you you put in and then that gets put through the process where, you know, my job was to check the punnets to make sure that it wasn't just filled with terrible fruit. And then once I checked it, you would get paid for that. Uh, on, and that would be meant to be on top of the minimum wage. So 
you know, in principle, you could probably just sit at the end of the field and not do anything and still get paid. But, um, you know, that's the way it should be anyway. Uh, and I basically figured out that lots of people weren't getting paid minimum, minimum wage and they just simply didn't know what the minimum wage of the UK at the time was. And because of the way the exchange rate worked, um, you could effectively um, pay off, you know, if you were from Poland, you could pay off um, a year's worth of student debt working on this farm for a month, a month and a half. And so for a lot of people, they just didn't notice and, um, or, you know, or care. And so I sort of caught up in it and it was one of those like, right, okay, well, we need to do something about this. And so, you know, I helped organize the, the situation where, you know, people went on strike, uh, work stoppages, working to rule, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and eventually the, the, the company ended up paying people their, their actual wage. And I, I was very, very quickly let go because I was on a contract to effectively say, you know, I would turn up every day and they say if you've got work or not. There we go. Um, Dan, uh, what's your story? So, um, I, I was never unionized. I mean, their workplace isn't unionized. Um, I joined Unite, I think it was Unite, in 2015 for the, the affiliation to the Labour Party because I, I figured if I was going to pay money to be a member, I might as well go in and join a union as well. But also, I, I, I kind of thought that given that that was the time of heavy purges, I, I doubt they'd really want to fuck with union affiliates. Um, so I felt like it was a safer entry into the Labour Party to avoid sort of having them fuck about with membership. I had a friend who joined at the same time and they did. They they really dragged their feet with his membership. Um, I know I know quite a few people that joined through the Labour Party itself and all their, their membership applications were heavily delayed, whereas you join a, a union and you get that affiliate membership straight away. Um, I ended up leaving them because it was... At the time, I had quite a, quite a few loans and stuff coming out, and it was thirteen pound a month that I wasn't using. I, I couldn't couldn't really justify it to myself, and they were constantly harassing me to take out insurances and all this sort of affiliate programs. Um, and I was getting I was getting phone calls three or four times a week from them trying to sell me stuff, and I just wasn't interested. Um, and ultimately, there was no. There's no impetus for anyone else in my workplace to, to unionize. They weren't interested even when I talked to them about it. So I kind of felt like I was on my own a bit. So there was a, a few things that kind of made me feel like, well, it's a bit of a waste of time. Um, and in essence, if we have a problem at the workplace, it's because there's only sort of 10, 12 of us on the factory floor. If we talk about it and we all kind of agree on something, generally um we find that more effective than getting an intermediary in so my i wouldn't say it's been a negative experience it was more of a, a kind of a nothing experience but then I, I am led to believe that unite aren't particularly great so i mean there is a mythology maybe there's obviously degrees of truth to it that the pre-Thatcher times were, and statistically union membership is high, but were, it was a time when unions had enormous power, when everything was working. You know, again, there's amongst amongst the, the spirit of 45 kind of, I love Ken Loach, but he can be a bit, ignore some of the unpleasant sides of the Labour Party. Nostalgic. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, there, it was obviously different nationalised industries, huge union membership. Um, we can go into it in in later, you know, before the end about the bad sides of that. But what about the, what is wrong with unions right now in the UK that, I mean, I know they're bouncing back, as Will said, the Wobblies are starting to gain members. That's great, and, and the more of that, the better. But what exactly is wrong with unions that Dan says, like, I was a member of this thing, they weren't really doing anything for me. You know, I could just organize people in the workforce myself. It was fine. That's something wrong. There's something that seriously has gone wrong with the unions that, that the membership is down or was down for many, many years, year on year, and they're just not helping people. Um, Will, I think you had your hand up. 
So like um for one like what Dan just described was essentially like an informal union, right? Like he kinda like collectively organized the people in his workplace yeah. to negotiate better terms in some way. But like formal union accreditation um is supposed to like give you a lot more teeth. The problem is that a lot of unions, because um there's been so many like union busting laws coming out, like which accelerated really aggressively since two thousand and ten. I mean I can talk about how I've been affected by that if you want later on. But um like the unions are too shit scared to like take on any kind of policy that the government propose that is going to fuck over their workers. So the NASUWT, um, the major teaching union in our country, is expressly is pasted all over their website, not political, and they do not back a political party. They will not give you advice on how to vote. Um, I was told when I was a regional sec that I was not allowed to encourage members to vote Labour. In fact, I had to steer clear of all discussions around elections. And this is a trade union, you know, this, this is like rules 101 of trade union organising is like trying to remember to get your members to vote um, for political change where possible. And like most unions in the country are now too shit scared to do it. Unite are a shower of placators if ever I've met them. Like they're <laughs> absolutely useless, toothless bastards. I really cannot stand Unite the Union at all. Um, they, they, never, they'll, they never do anything for their members, like certainly not to Parliament. I felt they were more interested in selling me stuff, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. Like the, that's very much like a lifestyle brand for Unite. Yeah. James? James? Yeah, sorry, I was muted. I was just trying to unmute it. Were <laughs> um, yeah. you not listening to what they were saying? I was listening to what I'm saying, but I, like, I mute myself when they're speaking, so in case I make accidental noise. <laughs> <laughs> you have loose bells. Yeah. <laughs> just in I case. do that as well. I let one rip off while they're speaking, and then uh, that gets into the the audio of the podcast. Unite the fart, <laughs> fart shows. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it's it is like <clears throat> it's partly to do with how old some of the unions are, as well, and so they have these structures uh, that are basically. Like someone somewhere in the union is getting fat, uh, going to the right dinners or, you know, getting the right kickbacks, et cetera, et cetera. It's just the way that the, like say Unite is a good example, I would say, that the, the, member, the way that the membership is set up of Unite is, um, I think it's like mostly nurses. I think that's like the biggest um contributor to the Unite Union. And so they would have, say, is that right? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, that, that's nice. definitely right, yeah. Yeah, and so they have this weird power over it uh, where it's like nurses should probably have their own union to deal with their own things. And so it's like what a nurse wants from a union is very different from what a paramedic wants from a union. Uh, and so it has this like sort of upended effect on it um and like being a shop steward in say the 80s uh before like thatcherism really kicked off um it was a way to get you places rather than actually have to um look after you know the people that are paying their dues you could use that as a stepping stone in your career definitely um, I suppose the next question. Oh, Will wants to say something first. Go for it. No, I was just um, going to like quickly say, like, totally agree with what Dan. Uh, sorry, um, James just said there. Um, like for the teachers' union, because so many members don't come to us with problems. I think a lot of the time because, like, I think things take a lot. Like things take a long time to um, put into action. So, like, our membership sometimes don't come to us if they've got a problem. And because of that, like the regional, the regional unions have got this massive amount of wealth. Um, and like at one point, we in the teachers union, like that were on the committee for the teachers union in Hampshire in the south uh, west of England, um, it just became a dining club. Like we went out for a meal once a month where we discussed local cases and we discussed like, you know, some random bullshit. But like we never actually really did that much. It, it did just become like, like when when James is talking about people getting fat in the union, like that was basically me. Um, 
and like it's just it's just awful it shouldn't be the case that like you've built up this massive surplus of money you should use the money to like help your members and, it, and the thing is it was there to help our members like we were always like trying to organize more member participation but when you've got a profession of people who work 80 70 hours a week um who are fucking knackered who go home to like three or four kids um and like have to prepare themselves for the next day participating in the union is hard um, and that that does mean that people will just use it to advance their careers. Unfortunately, totally agree with what James said. Brief uh, retort from James, but then we're going to have to move on. Go on. Yeah, I think it's important to remember as well as just because you're in a union doesn't make you a good guy, either. Um, me and Alex were involved in a, a a strike that happened in Edinburgh um, about the 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 bin men. It was something to do with like oh, yeah, the babies. I forgot about that. Yeah, and I mean, it was a long time ago. It's like you know, pushing ten years ago. So the exact um, way that it played out is a bit fuzzy. But it was effectively, you know, they were getting a real pay cut because of the way that the gender laws were changing. So it's like the um, the council were bringing down people's pay because they were going to have to pay the female bin men the same amount of money, and so. Um, this basically kicked off this um, um, the strike action, and the bin men were not going on strike. Like they were going on strike, they weren't picking anything up, uh, and they, you know, did what they did, which would send in scabs to start picking up um, the the trash in the affluent areas. Basically, in Leith, the 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 bin. Um, the bin bags just keep piling up day after day, week oh, after week. I remember that now. Jesus, yeah. yeah. And then in Morningside, obviously, <laughs> yeah, like they were all gone from it. We'll um, remember it for some reason. Like for legal reasons, <laughs> I say, um, allegedly they paid members of the mob to to be doing the the, the cleanups. And so, you know, me and Alex and other people of, you know, the left-wing persuasions, anarchists, socialists, etc., of Edinburgh, like, got into these people's faces. And, you know, we stopped them picking up places. There was fights. There was brawls. There was a lot going on. We did a lot for the, the guys on strike there. They didn't do fucking anything for us. They didn't even give us the most tacit amount of thanks, bud. And when it came down to it, their members voted. Um, I can't even remember what it was now, but it was basically they voted to just have the way that things were. And so they would take the pay cut in the end um, rather than be on strike for any longer. And so there was not even a like, all right, there, lads, thanks for that. It was just like, nah, fuck it. That was my dad's experience at the CWU when he worked at the post office. It, it, he said, found it very difficult to be motivated to help people when. You give them the advice and they'd just go along with what the management were telling them they needed to do. Now, uh, to move on to the next little thing. So all of this feeds in somewhat into what's uh, re-emerging in the news again, which is the Tory Brexit, uh, their particular brand of creating uh, Singapore on the Thames. Um, I mean, we were kind of sending a link around about, um, or pardon me, Will sent a link, link around about um, basically what this can mean for the ECHR, which is the I think European Council on Human Rights, and in particular how this will affect workers' rights in a post-Brexit UK. Now, it seems, though even though the, the Boris Johnson's being forced to accept an extension, that some type of hard Brexit, quote-unquote, Will happen and they've said the the uh, european research group has said they want out of the echr and everything that means which means european union will say well fuck you we're not doing anything with you then anyway that's a brexit related thing but specifically on the issues of workers rights do we believe or do we think that the the situation as bad as it is now as we've talked about how bad the work environment is with rules how bad it's going to be without those rules there um uh, the project that is being put forward by the european research group by people such as mr mogg who disappeared because he's a he was a bit too racist publicly i have to hold you know, hold your uh, hold that down a bit um but what do we think um is going on here is this an active kind of further stage of thatcherism um dan 
Uh, I, th I think generally the common consensus amongst most people that I speak to is that, that the removal of of the Human Rights Act in that sense is a, a, a targeted attack on workers' rights. I don't know anybody that thinks otherwise. Um, but you said yourself, Singapore and Thames, I think Singapore is the model for a, a post-Brexit Britain. Um, I, I don't really see what would be there to stop them doing it. Um, I, th I think part of uh, what, from what I've read, union membership is really starting to shoot up. And I think part of that is because of people's perceived threat from this. Absolutely. Will? Yeah, and no, I totally agree. Um, the, when I mean, you've got like a party who are so obsessed with deregulation um, and like so antagonistic towards workers' rights as the Conservative Party negotiating Brexit, um, like it's they're obviously going to like absolutely obliterate any kind of laws that are designed to protect workers' rights, um, and like you know like they were opposed to a minimum wage in the first place. So I don't know if these things are protected currently by the European Court of Human Rights. I'd be, I'd be amazed if like the first thing to get rolled back was workers' rights. Um, I managed to get quite a few teachers to join um, the union, like the new the newly qualified teachers to join the union, purely based on saying to them, look, Brexit is going to like take away your legal rights. The only protection we're going to have is through collective action. Um, you need to join, and like they were like, actually, yeah, I totally agree. Um, nobody trusts the Conservatives um, to protect workers' rights because everyone knows that their class interests are fundamentally different. It should be said that in the major government in the nineties, when the ECHR had brought in a rule saying that oh, people can't work more than forty-eight hours. Period. They were able to get a UK opt-out so people that workers could quote unquote choose to work more than 48 hours, which actually is bullshit. Basically, it meant pressuring people under threat of losing their job. But the EU, or the ECHR, which is separate from the EU, it's not, it's connected, but not the same, uh, backed it down on that issue and let the, Brit the British you know, work, uh, work practices kind of deviate. So it just should be said. Um, James. Yeah, so that leads nicely into my point, which is like it doesn't really matter if you're in the EU or the EHR or whatever, because you can just do what you want in these institutions. And as long as you have enough power, they won't wield it against you. The amount of laws that the UK has broken over the past like 10, 15, 20 years, uh, same with Ireland, same with France, same with Italy, and the stick, you know, never comes down. Um, for example, um, just as a as an aside, but like Finnegal, 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 we're looking at doing um, like a a vote on whether you should have um, housing for citizens as like an enshrined right. It's like, well, that's already a law that we have under EU. You know, like the amount of austerity things that came through that was explicitly against um, the laws that you're meant to to abide to when you were part of the eu um you can just do what you want it doesn't matter and that was you know why what one of the big cases for um you know the lexit was you know absolutely uh will again um yeah like um i mean that's like definitely true especially when it comes to like governments um applying pressure um, on workers, um, but there were there were times like where I've gone into a school to like um, defend a member against a fairly oppressive head teacher, where I have been able to like tap the law and just say, look, it's against the law. Like you'd be breaking um, the law, and we'd have right at, like the right grounds to sue you for um, unfair dismissal or what have you. So like, like I get that like the law is fairly toothless, especially in these institutions. It's totally toothless. Well, but, um, the sign. Yeah, but like exactly like sometimes like at least just threatening that like can some it's better to have that than not have that at all um but how effective i totally get the point like it's ineffective when no one's enforcing it i think, I think the argument in, in just but just to say very very briefly before going to dan i think the argument that the brexiteers want rid of it is probably an argument that it does something otherwise they just if it did nothing they wouldn't think anything of it. It would be one of these stupid things. It must must do something they dislike. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think a lot of the time that companies really don't want the hassle of even having to think about fighting stuff. So so a lot of the time, if if you stand your ground, regardless of the law, they, they tend to 
not necessarily back down and make concessions, but they they won't always push the way that they they wanted to. Absolutely, um, uh, James. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, though, because I was involved with a legal case that effectively um, I had every law on my side, and mm-hmm. thanks to the way that the Tories have set up the 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 court system. Um, I got bounced around so efficiently that by the time that the legal fees were taken out, I got 30 euros um, out of it. And I've never really financially recovered from this situation. I was owed something close to 10,000 quid from it. I remember that. Yeah, Jesus Christ. They really fucked you over. so what I might do with this one is because I think this it's, it's pretty much the same question, which is that we're now entering a world post-COVID world or whatever. Certain Britain seems to still have it, but they'd be ignoring it now. Um, where issues of reset, you know, the recessions, depressions are going to be made. The issues, the calls for austerity. Workers are going to be facing more attacks than they have since the last time they faced lots of attacks, um, which wasn't even that long ago. So really from our perspective and from you, us as workers, and particularly you guys who've lived in the UK for most of your lives, what can UK workers or any worker for that matter do to resist what's coming, but in, in particular learn also the, about the failings of unions in the past, the failings of laws that were meant to protect workers but didn't? Is there, um, some people have called again for the kind of turning back to something like the one big union of the 1920s and 30s with the Wobblies. Others have said we need something far more ideological, not just merely unions, but like an actual proper communist, libertarian communist in our case, ideology that's linked to these things. Um, the perfect example people often tell you still exists as a union would be an anarcho-syndicalist uh, CNT in, in Spain, something that was not merely just a union, but a militant and ideological kind of force. Um, what do we think is the is, is a good response to what's coming um, and, and, and one that's better than just merely having more people in the union? Uh, James. Um, my response to this is everyone knows what you need to do to make things better. It's, it's always been obvious and that's the way that it has been for 30 years. It's just people are not willing to do it. You go on general strike, you go on rent strike, you stop work, you like you pull the landlords out by the their hair and take them out into the street and you tar them like you burn down the police precincts this is you know there's i know i said it in another episode but there's more happened in eight years uh there's more happened in two weeks than happened in eight years with direct action there's no like the reason that the iww have that cat that says direct action gets the goods is because that's true and it's because you have to do it yourself. Someone else is not going to do it for you. So you need to get involved with your union. You need to accept that maybe your union isn't going to take you that far. And so you have to, to radicalize your union or your members. And if the union is not going to look after you, do it yourself. Get the IWW in. Like These networks exist and they've always existed. Uh, well, not always, but for a very long time have existed. Like People are going to have your back. Things are going to get really spicy. And the way that we're going to get through it is working together. Absolutely. Will? Um, so, like, yeah, like, I think I think, like, I totally agree with everything James said. So, like, the IWW are definitely, although we are, like, one big union, we're all, I, I don't know a single member who's not an anarchist or a communist. Um, and like this is almost expressly stated on like the on the wobbly stuff now, um, like hence like the black cat which James mentioned. Something I would say workers need to be mindful of is the fact um, that there are lots of union busting guidelines going around to employers. So if you are thinking about organising your workplace, and there are loads and loads of like resources and how to go about doing this, um, the thing you need to be wary of is an employer will literally work out how much it will cost them to unfairly dismiss you and then they'll weigh that against how much it will cost to implement the thing that you want to do so like if you if you're saying that everyone should get paid five pounds more and they work out that will cost them say a hundred thousand pounds over like five years and they know that sack and you will cost them say like fifty thousand or thirty thousand pounds and then legal fees they'll just sack you 
um, because it, it will cost them less. And they've got like um, people who will do this calculation extremely effectively. So you need to defend yourself. And again, there's like various like pieces of infrastructure that can help you do this. Um, can I like quickly talk about like one of the union busting things that I had happen about against me? Yeah, go for it. So um, I was the union rep for my school and I'm also like a caseworker. So that meant that I was legally, and again, this will like play into James's point, I was legally entitled to facilities time. Now facilities time in the UK means that you are legally allowed um, protected time off work in order to do um, union activities if you um, have a certain role in the union. So I had this role in the union and I was entitled to like one day of facility time. And all my school had to do um, was give my union my payroll number for Hampshire County Council. That's all they had to do. Um, the union pay the facilities time, so it's not coming out the school budget, it's not coming out the county council budget. Um, to get this facilities time, I had to have the democratic mandate of the members of my union, which meant over 80% of our members had to vote for me to do this. So they did, right? Like uh, we had an election and this was voted on and, and it passed. And my school refused to give me my payroll number. Um, I emailed every bloody week to say, please, can you send my payroll number to my union? Um, I didn't even work on the day that they, that I was going to get facilities time. Like I wasn't like asking for time out of school. And they refused to do it. And so much time had elapsed since them eventually giving me my payroll reference number, which had to come from them, not from me. So much time had elapsed that the democratic mandate I held was legally deemed to be um, non-valid at that point because so much time had passed, which meant I wasn't entitled to facilities time and I wasn't entitled to pay, um, which again was legally protected in law. Um, how else would it be legally protected? So like, as a consequence of this, um, I had to resign my post from the union because like I couldn't afford to work for no money. Um, and it's a lot of work you've got to do. So like this is a really shitty thing um, that employers do. And it's actually mentioned on the union busting document that all these employers get. It's like this is this is like this delaying tactic is a way of undermining um, the power of a union in the workplace. And member like people in workplaces need to become more savvy about these tactics so that they can spot when it's happening to them. Dan, your turn. I think in essence, if you if you want look at a larger union movement, I think really you need to try and break the stranglehold of the sort of sense of individualism that people have in this country, because that I think that is a real block. Um, I, I've seen it in my own workplace where people are quite happy to shit on someone else and that as long as they're getting what they, they feel is their due, um, it, it's difficult to to recommend a union to people that, that just aren't interested, don't even know what a union is. Um, I think that, that's where, I, I think to me, that almost feels like it was a, a long-term project of Thatcherism. Um, in, in order to really break unions, they, they needed a real strong sense of individual over the collective. But if that's the process that, that happened, and that's a process that was an ideological goal that was achieved, it's something that can be countered as well. So something James often says to me is, uh, when I go, oh, I don't know, you know, people are brainwashed. He goes, if they're brainwashed, then you can unbrainwash them, basically. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree because, with that, yeah. Not that it's not that it's it make it makes it easy. It's not you know it wasn't easy to break. Yeah. it wasn't easy to inculcate people in that way. It took well, 30, forty years, you know. Yeah, I don't feel it's inevitable. It's very important to think that way, um, James. Yeah, there's a reason that labor councillors are going into mutual aid groups and fucking wrecking them. Mm. It's, um, it's damaging. Yeah, they know exactly what they're doing. Um, because they're scared that movements will start happening outside of labor uh, and they won't be able to control what's happening. And you know what? They're probably fucking right because things are going to get really spicy. Uh, well, we can only hope, but you know, we're very rarely wrong <laughs> on these accounts. <laughs> so I think we're, you know, we're all in agreement that things might really heat up a little bit and um, you know, a lot of unions don't have the power or even the will to take the fight that's going to need to happen. And so 
that's why I say something like the IWW, like it's been dormant for a while. It's maybe not had the power that it's had for a long time, but that doesn't mean that it's not there and it can't be unleashed. monster chewing then swallowing the specter of Jeffrey Epstein once he poops him out we'll be hopefully be able to catch him and uh, cross-examine him uh, in the meantime we hope you enjoyed the podcast remember to share and subscribe here's Billy Bragg's version of there is power in the union until next week Together we don't stand There is power in a union Now the lessons of the past Were all learned with workers' blood The mistakes of the bosses We must pay for From the cities and the farmlands To trenches full of mud War has always been the bosses' way, sir the union forever defending our rights Down with the black leg workers unite With our brothers and our sisters Together we will stand There is power in a union Now I long for the morning That they realise brutality and unjust laws Cannot defeat us Who'll defend the workers who cannot organise When the bosses send their lackeys out to cheat us Money speaks for money, the devil for his own Who comes to speak for the skin and the bone What a comfort to the widow, a light to the child There is power in a union The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg, all workers unite With our brothers and our sisters Together we will stand There is power in a union